they say to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wine skins. If he did, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. I'm sure you've heard this one before. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. From a young age, we're taught to spot the signs of impending storms, aren't we? And last week, you may have spotted the morning sky turning a certain shade of crimson red when we looked at different stories of people who encountered Jesus. People who encountered Jesus, for the most part, in a positive way, but in the background, lurking, shimmering, like a morning sky of red. There were problems. Jesus healed a man of his paralysis, but in the midst of that encounter, he often he also offered the man forgiveness for his sins. Now, within you, shot of all of this, there were Pharisees, religious leaders, people who saw it as their job, their responsibility to, to lead Israel back to purity um, in order to be restored. And they hear what Jesus has to say about forgiving this man's sin. And in their hearts, they question. Just the seeds of doubt began to be sown. Is this guy really saying what we think he's saying? Who does he think he is that he can go around forgiving sins? A little bit later, Jesus encounters Levi, the tax collector, universally despised. And instead of condemning this man and his actions, Jesus invites him to be one of his followers. To come and to sit at his feet as a student to a teacher. More than that, Levi, seeing how wonderful Jesus is, throws a party, invites all of his mates, and now Jesus is sitting down, he's rubbing shoulders, he's associating with the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. And now it's not a question in their heart, it's a spoken thing. They say, Lord, what on earth are you doing? Why do you sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners? The sky is turning red. He's teaching some questionable things. He's mixing and inviting some questionable people to follow him. And in today's passage, we see that they just don't 
think that he's even got a basic grasp of spirituality. Jesus may be a worker of some mighty miracles, but when it comes to leading a religious movement, he's not cut out for it. He certainly doesn't have the credentials. Here's what they ask him. John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. What gives? We know what it is to be religious people. We know what it is to be spiritual people. It's, it's praying. It's fasting. It's studying the scriptures. But your followers, who we're not thrilled with in the first place, don't seem to do any of the things that we do. What gives? And Jesus' answer, in effect, is this. Oh, boys, Bach, you have missed the point. You have completely and utterly missed what is taking part in front of your very very eyes. There's a great drama that's been unfolding. The climax is just being reached. It's on the TV and you're there stuck staring at the remote. The thing that was tuning the channel or setting the volume at the start. You're not seeing what's happening in front of you. Your eyes are elsewhere. Jesus says this, can you really make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? When the wedding is taking place, isn't that a time for feasting and celebration rather than fasting and preparation? A time will come in when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Jesus chooses his words very carefully here. It's not just handy that they're speaking about fasting and so he uses a, an example of uh, a time when a lot will be eaten and a lot will be drunk. It's not just a handy metaphor in that sense. Jesus is tapping into one of the ways the Bible uses to explain the great story of history and God and us and everything in between. You think about it, there's a lot of ways that we can kind of contain and describe that great story, that great drama. Sometimes we speak of it in terms of a great peril, a great danger being faced by people, by you and I. And it's the story of God, this hero, this rescuer, coming in to save us from that danger. That's the story of the Bible, you could and perhaps should say. From start to finish, gener uh, Genesis through to Revelations, that is what is happening. But there are other ways of describing it. You could describe it as the story of the king. The king who is coming to take his throne. The king who is coming to sit and to rule and to reign over his kingdom and his people. That is the story. That is how you should describe what the Bible is from Genesis to Revelation. But there's another story as well. A story that perhaps we don't speak about enough. And it's the story of a husband and a wife. A bride and a groom. A story of God wedding himself to a people. It's the language that's used in places like Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 54, we read this. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. 
The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. For your maker is your husband. Or elsewhere, the prophet Jeremiah has it like this. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. Perhaps most famously of all the prophets to use this language is Hosea. Hosea, whose own life and marriage were themselves a, a picture, an illustration for the relationship between God and his people. He wrote this, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You see, Jesus did choose his words very carefully when he responded here. And he positions himself like this. He is the bridegroom who was promised. He was the groom at last come. The wedding can take place. The celebrations can begin. No more preparations. No more anticipations. Now, realizations. And so he says to the Pharisees and to John the Baptist's disciples, he says, haven't you missed the point? Haven't you missed the fact that this great Drama is reaching its culmination and its climax right in front of your very eyes. To keep on doing those things that you were doing while you were waiting, while you were preparing, would be to utterly miss the point. The bride doesn't step into the wedding venue and find people still fiddling with the flower arrangements. The bride and the groom don't step onto the dance floor and find people still leafing through playlists and records, wondering what might potentially be the first dance when the time arrives. No, when the bride arrives, the people stand to celebrate. When the bride and the groom find their way onto the dance floor, the DJ hits the play button and the music plays. Now is not the time for preparation, Jesus says. Now is the time for realization. Now is the time for celebration actualization. I am he and I am here and you have utterly missed it. He goes on to tell them this parable it says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch of the new will not match the old and no one pours new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst those skins, the wine will run out, and the wine skins will be utterly ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. As far as I can see it, there are two explanations for the reverse of the question they asked Jesus. If we turn the tables on the Pharisees and John the, the Baptist's disciples, and ask them the question, if the bridegroom is here, why are you still fasting? There are, a way I can see it, two potential answers they can give. First one is this. Oh, we didn't recognise that the bridegroom had arrived. Perhaps they were expecting a top hat and tails and in walks a gentleman wearing a kilt. 
I know in some households in our church, that's the, the dress that the husband chose for the wedding. And so they see it and they don't recognize who he is. There's plenty of that going on in the Gospels. People who are expecting the, the rescuer, the hero, uh, the king who is coming to rule and the reign, the, the bridegroom who's coming to, to wed the bride, they're expecting him to look and to behave a certain way. And Jesus doesn't match up to that. And that troubles them, that confuses them. But there's also this potential answer, isn't there? That the reason that they're still fasting, even though the bridegroom has arrived, is because they were never waiting for the bridegroom in the first place. It was never their agenda, it was never their desire to be doing the things that they were doing in the hope that he would come. They'd taken their eyes off God, they'd lost sight, they'd lost direction, they were like ships without a rudder just drifting at sea. Jesus says, do you know what? The bridegroom has arrived. Now is the time, not for fasting, but for feasting. Not for, pre for preparing, but for celebrating. And you guys, on the one hand, you've not recognised me. But on the other hand, you simply don't seem interested in the fact that I've come. Jesus says, it's going to do you no good. It's going to do you no good to keep clinging on to the things that you have assigned value to, that you have given importance to, that you have put your trust and your worth and your safety and your security in. It's no good to hang on to those and then have the bridegroom come in. In fact, that's going to lead to ruin. It's going to lead to ruin of the thing that you're trying to patch up with that, that new cloth. It's going to lead to the ruin of the wineskins that you're trying to pour that new wine into. Jesus says, really, what you guys need, turning the table on you now, why you are still fasting, is to give up your old ways, your old priorities, and trust, like these guys are, most fully in me. Now, that is not to say that there was an old way of religion that Jesus has come now to abolish, that there are things that were sensible back then that God has said, no, no more of that now. He says, doesn't he? that the fasting that went before will happen again because the bridegroom has come, but he's also gone away for a while. He gave things like prayer and, and scripture and, and, and fasting as a, as a means of, of keeping focus and trust on him in the old days. And he is given to, to us now as we anticipate his return. It's not saying that there are some things that they were doing and that were right and there were some things that they were doing that were wrong and they need to figure out which one's which. No, he's saying that even in doing the right things, they had completely and utterly missed the point. The reason that they were still fiddling with flower arrangements is because they didn't care that the groom had arrived. They were never waiting for the groom in the first place. That's not to say that flower arrangements in a wedding are bad. Do you, do you get my point? I'm pushing the metaphor as far as I can. Jesus says to them, you're going to have to give up the things that you're trusting in. Your own performance, your own works, your own sense of self-righteousness because of your moral purity or your, your perceived holiness. Jesus says, if you truly are going to accept the bridegroom who has come, the rescuer, the hero, the king who is now on his throne, you're going to have to let go of all those things.
but it's not easy. You know, our very nature is to cling tightly to the things that we've already decided are important. When we've assigned value, when we've put our trust, when we've staked our reputation on something to say that we don't need that anymore and that something better is here, that's really difficult. Jesus finishes up by saying, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. It's hard to be persuaded. It's hard to take our roots up and move elsewhere. But Jesus says that is what is necessary. You need to stop trusting in yourselves and you need to start trusting in me. You need to stop looking at each other and what you can achieve. And you need first and foremost and primarily like these tax collectors and sinners have done to trust in me alone. Now let me just again turn the tables, not from the Pharisees looking at Jesus and his disciples to looking at the Pharisees, but looking at us. Where do we find ourselves? Can any of us really say that we find ourselves in a time where we do not need Jesus? Surely we are blessed. Surely it is the grace of God in our lives that we have been stripped away of so many of the things that we have been clinging on to. We've had taken from us, taken from them, the strength and the security of so many of our idols. We've had it stripped away that we can trust in, in health. We've had it stripped away that we can trust in family even because of the separation that we've experienced. Also, people have had it stripped away that they can trust and find security and safety and fulfillment in their finances and their work. Lots of us have, have had the, the things that we like to do, our, our hobbies, our passions, where we find our identity stripped away from us. We're in that privileged position of recognising that we need the bridegroom to come. That our old garments aren't up to scratch, that our old wineskin simply will not do. But I wonder how many of us truly are still clinging on. How many of us are still with that taste of the old wine in our mouth and willing to take a sip of the new? How many of us are afraid to let go of what we trust in and with both hands grab hold of and trust in Jesus? I wonder how many of us are waiting for the bridegroom who recognise who he is, Jesus, and truly are waiting for him to come back and put it all right. Here's an exercise I want us to finish with. An exercise that I think will help us to listen and to respond to what Jesus is saying here. What it, ask yourself the question, what is it that you are most afraid of losing? What is it that you are most afraid of losing? That will be a window into what it is that you truly value something that potentially is in that place that only jesus is supposed to occupy for these guys it was how they conducted themselves they truly valued their ritual purity their self-righteousness the boxes that they could tick 
good boxes and bad boxes that they could tick to say that they were right, that they were holy, that they were pure, that they were spiritual people. What are the things that we are most afraid of losing? That's a window onto the things that we are trying to cling on to and mingle with Jesus. Jesus says that will not work. You need to let go of the old and cling on to me, the new. Ask ourselves this question. Do this exercise. What is it that makes you feel safe? What is it in your life that makes you feel acceptable? What is it in your life that makes you feel valued? What is it in your life that makes you feel clean and pure? If it's not Jesus, then Jesus says, it's an old garment that needs to be thrown in the rubbish. It can't be patched up. It's an old wineskin that you cannot pour new wine into, otherwise it'll be ruined. Are we waiting for the bridegroom? Have we spotted him? Do we recognise who he is? Are we trying to have our cake and eat it? Jesus is warning to these guys that it was going to lead them to ruin. And in the lives of many, it did. But you know what's interesting about the Pharisees and John's disciples? Is that for a few of them, they took the plunge. They were willing to jump on the Jesus bandwagon 100%. Not just to follow him round, making snarky comments, questioning whether he really was all that he claimed to be. But there were people who abandoned them their self-righteousness. People like Levi who abandoned um, the hope and the trust that he'd put in finances and gave themselves over completely to Jesus. I wonder what is it that is holding us back? What is it that's holding you back? When we explore Luke's gospel, will we see a Jesus who is worth replacing everything else we have with? I hope that we do. Lord God, I pray that you would help us even today to spot and to identify those things in our lives, even good things in our lives, Lord God, which are distracting us from you, which are robbing us of the attention that we should be given to you, the focus that we should be given to you, the devotion that we should be giving to you alone. Lord God, I thank you for Jesus' challenge to us this morning, not to try and mix and match, not to try and hang on with one hand to the, to the useless things, to the weak things, to the shameful things, but uh, with two hands, and, and, and full-headed pace run towards you and lay hold to Jesus alone. Our bridegroom who's come to take care of us. To give us those gifts that come with marriage. To be the one who has come to love and to bless us forever. Lord, help us to see what those things are in our lives that need to be gotten rid of. Help us to see how much more valuable Jesus is and give us the courage to make the switch. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.